I'm really pleased to welcome everyone to a new podcast episode of Evidence Interaction. This is the EEF podcast, which brings expertise from around the country and around the world on important educational topics. We speak to experts and we speak to expert school leaders, and we try and translate the rich research evidence into action. This particular episode is pretty timely. It's that time of year again. We have those national exams. So pupils in primary school sit SATs. In secondary school, we have GCSEs and A-levels. And, and more so than any year, it feels quite unique given the experiences of the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm really pleased that in this episode, we get to speak to Professor David Putwain from Liverpool John Moores University. And we also get to speak to two brilliant school leaders uh, who also unpick some of these current salient challenges about tackling examinations and, and, and the important preparation and emotion and practices that surround this tricky time of year. So let's start by introducing uh, my co-host first, uh, Kirsten Mould. Kirsten, this isn't the first time you've been co-host, so uh, thank you for coming back and tolerating uh, attending and co-hosting. It's great to be back, Alex, um, and, and really interested in this subject that we're discussing right now. My work with EEF is with the content specialist team, and I guess particularly the work on learning behaviours, trying to bring that complex picture of behaviour, social-emotional learning, metacognition, parental engagement, and SEND all together. And I think that will be really salient to some of our conversations today. Um, but also an assistant head teacher at a secondary school in Shropshire and Senko in my school life as well. That leads us nicely to introduce our first guest and, and Professor Patwain. Uh, David, if you could just introduce yourself and your background, and I think that will kind of give us all a, a real strong insight into the direction of travel in terms of this topic. Yeah, thanks very much, Alex, and thanks very much for inviting me today. It's uh, great to be here. Uh, so I started uh, as a secondary school teacher in 1994, and I spent 12 years in the classroom, I think, and then I went back to university, did a PhD, uh, and I've been in the HE sector since 2006. And my broad interest really is how psychology can be used to understand, um, improve our understanding, and also direct intervention uh, broadly into learning and achievement. Now, that's a big area. So, you know, within that, my specific interest is in uh, the emotional aspects of learning, uh, but also students' motivation and their engagement and the influence of the classroom environment, the teacher, and so on. And, you know, if you're going to focus down again when you start talking to students about emotions especially secondary school students then especially around exam times then quite quickly you get into stress and anxiety and pressure and worry and so on so quite a big um, area of my research is focused on these anxieties experienced around high stakes exams like GCSEs and A-levels. That's great and I think and we've touched on it already that this year is a unique time there are some again kind of prediction predictable annual challenges but there's something unique about the experience of the pandemic for for young children for older students there'll be some you know a-level students who've never sat in you know traditional exams and and actually just the the challenge of adolescence during this spell and I know that it's been an area where you've been um, writing and co-writing some interesting research about this ordinary magic in extraordinary circumstances was a really 
evocative title. Can you talk a little bit about those insights that you've gleaned from recent times and and, and the relevance of that? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think, you know, if you're going to look for the standout message that comes through from students right through the pandemic, actually, uh, in relation to their education, it's one of uncertainty. But I think the meaning of that uncertainty has changed a little bit for the students. I'm specifically talking about year 11 students, maybe year 10, 11 students in the first year of the pandemic, the second year of the pandemic and the third year of the pandemic. Because, you know, there were kind of very different phases, if you like, of that, of that whole, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, of that whole pandemic experience. So, uh, you know, for students at the very outset of this uh, who are, probably about two or three weeks off finishing year 11 when, you know, the pandemic broke in a big way and everything shut down. You know, the initial uncertainty was what was going to happen with exam grades. And, you know, it was mixed up with all of these feelings of uh, disappointment. You know, I spent five years of my life working really hard towards this and I don't get to finish. Um, Relief in some cases, um, anger in some cases, bizarrely gratitude in some cases uh, towards the government uh, or, you know, the decision makers for, for taking that decision. But all mixed up with that sense of uncertainty. I've been working so hard towards this, what was going to happen and feeling, you know, that, that the communication wasn't very good with them, that they were kind of left out of the loop and so on and so on. Um, in the second year of the pandemic, uh, you know, the government took the decision to not hold exams for a second year earlier on in the school year. So it removed some of that initial uncertainty about the grading process. Um, and I think in the second year, the, the, the major message that came through from students was about the uncertainty arising from the educational disruption. Just the lack of continuity, um, plus the difficulties some students have learning online um, and you know, the time out of, of school and trying to squeeze all that stuff back in, you know, and it just, it left a lot of question marks over students feeling in control to a greater or lesser degree over their ability to, you know, manage their workload, focus on what they needed to focus on for the exams and so on and so on. Um, and then this year, like you say, is, is the first year where we're, you know, back to exams um, so the uncertainty is almost exclusively on that disruption that occurred during year nine, year 10, um, to a lesser extent this year, because, you know, obviously schools haven't been closed, but there have been big COVID outbreaks and students missing chunks of time, teachers missing chunks of time. So although students have been back in school, that doesn't mean that they haven't been experiencing a lot of educational disruption this year. So it's the uncertainty. The uncertainty is the big thing. And, you know, added on to that uncertainty are, you know, all of the procedures that have been put in place in the second year of the pandemic to calculate te- teacher assess, centre assess grades in lieu of exam results. And then kind of all of the mock exams they've had this year, um, I, you know, I, you talk to students and it's just been a totally kind of relentless and dispiriting experience for them. You know, a really, really prolonged period of pressure in the way that, you know, that GCSEs and A-levels are always a pressured 
period for students, but it's been like kind of an, an extended period of pressure. And, you know, some people react really well to short periods of pressure, actually. It's the major kind of driver and boost for them, actually. You know, pressure in itself is not necessarily a bad thing, but prolonged pressure is not a good thing for anyone. And I think, you know, it's, it's sad when we're talking about adolescence and burnout in the same sentence. But, you know, I, I think... I get a sense from talking to colleagues in schools and also I get a sense from talking to students that there's quite a lot of these students feeling really quite burnt out by this whole experience. Um, so, you know, that sets the scene perhaps in a slightly... <laughs> I wasn't, wasn't intending to sound overly negative, but... Yeah, slightly you know, grim. <laughs> slightly grim way. Um, but when we come to the ordinary magic, you know, there's, there's all kinds of things that have shaped those experiences you know some of these things sit within students how they go about dealing with things and their personality and so on but also you know their home circumstances and what's going on at home during the pandemic their relationships with their parents their relationships with their peers their relationships with their school and community and so on and you know all of these things go about shaping how students dealt with that experience and are carrying that forward to deal with the experience this year. And, you know, it, kind of in a nutshell, um, it doesn't matter where students got their support from. It doesn't matter whether it was home or whether it was from school, community, friends, and so on and so on. Students who perceived they were getting more support dealt with the whole experience better. Um, you know, students who had a better ride through the pandemic for whatever reason, you know, either because um, they were in a very supportive home environment or because, um, you know, it was managed very effectively, the learning process by the school and so on and so on. It didn't matter why, but those students had a better ride through the pandemic, came out of it feeling better. But, you know, when you boil all of this stuff down, because there's an awful lot to throw in the mix, you know, the single thing that came out um, as the most important thing was students' optimism, their sense of optimism that they could get through this, their sense of optimism that when bad things happen, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. You know, just that general focus on the positive, that, that was the most important thing of the whole lot. So, you know, you can set the grim scene, <laughs> but within that, there's so much variation between people in terms of, you know, how they respond to it and how they deal with it. And, you know, I think that's so important to bear in mind that individual variation between students, because it's really easy you know, to, when you're talking about the big picture stuff, it almost lends itself to a one size fits all. But it's really important to remember that there, there is no one size for this at all. Yeah, I, th I think there's a, there's a fair demand for that kind of silver bullet kind of effect. And particularly, you know, if we're kind of mired in, in some of the grim realities that we we kind of observe and if you're a teacher feeling a bit under pressure at this time of year as well it can you know we, we are looking often for easy answers aren't we mm. um so that, that's a really important point to not be reductive and on this on the same hand there is a, a reality in terms of for teachers offering them messages that are you know, reduced probably slightly reductive and and a bit broad and I, I want to is there a message that you've drawn around control? So that, that was a word that stood out for me in terms of student sense of control. Mm. Um, can you talk a bit more about that? And there might not be a reductive message that, you know, all teachers should think about X, but 
are, are there messages around control that we can take forward you know as we move forwards by no means are we out of the pandemic but as we move forwards to a new normality uh, is there something about control that you think has kind of emerged um that's useful interesting uh, talk further about that yeah i mean the more students feel in control the less uncertainty they're going to experience so these things kind of go in opposites and you know control is an interesting thing because you know where does control come from you know it comes from positive experiences of learning it comes from students understanding why they achieved a particular score or a particular grade on a piece of work understanding the strategy of what they did that enabled the good grade or where they went wrong so they didn't get the grade or mark that they were wanting for um so you know student sense of control is rooted in the learning process and the feedback process that uh, teachers provide, you know, that's where the, this, this kind of control, sense of control comes from. Uh, and part of that sense of control is, you know, confidence, confidence in their ability to produce a specific piece of work, confidence in their ability to gain a target grade, confidence in their ability to, you know, meet maybe, you know, various demands which might be put on by the school or by their peers or by their uh, parents and so on and so on. Um, so, you know, I, we, we sometimes hear these words used interchangeably, you know, academic self-confidence, academic self-efficacy, academic self-concept, all of these things feed into this, um, sense of confidence, but also, you know, where students attribute their successes and failures to as well. You know, if a student gets a, you know, a piece of you know, mark X on a piece of work, you know, do they see that as coming from themselves? Do they see that as just some kind of fluke? Do they see it as occurring just because they got a piece of lots of teacher support and they couldn't do it without the teacher and so on and so on? So, you know, really, uh, and, you know, I've seen lots of schools do this. They spend an awful lot of time teaching students strategy, you know, in terms of breaking down exam questions. And, you know, this is what the kind of markers would be looking for. And this is how you can maximize your chance of, uh, picking up marks on this type of answer and so on and so on. You know, it doesn't necessarily lend itself to the most exciting or inspirational teaching, um, you know, but it's a response to the situation that we're in and a response to the pressures which are put upon schools to maximise achievement and so on and so on. And, yeah, there's good reasons for that as well. Um, but those kind of activities are the things that build students' confidence and uh, build their sense of control. Um, and that sense of control, that sense of belief, drives their motivation it drives their engagement and the motivation the combination of the motivation and engagement along with their actual skill is what drives their eventual achievement um, but it also drives a whole raft of positive emotions and you know dampens down negative emotions that sustain those um, positive intentions positive motivations positive engagement and so on and so on you know it's really really hard to stay switched on uh, and, and do tasks when you're, you know, hating every second of it or when you're just so bound up with worry about the outcome, um, you know, that ends up, you know, sucking in a lot of focus that could be put onto the task. So, you know, the combination of all of these things really is underpinned by control. It can't, it can't be, it can't be underplayed the value of this control. Uh, that's really interesting. I think one of the things I'm taking away from is this movement from 
perhaps broad fuzzy concepts. So control or confidence can be fuzzy, slightly ill-defined, but then actually what you did there is you, you're breaking that down to aspects of the learning process like feedback, you know, kind of mm-hmm. the language we're using, being being focused about exam preparation, but understanding the barriers to that. It's not as easy as, you know, gift students with a few revision strategies and, and everything's fine. There's an emotional terrain um, that attends that as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, that, that was that movement from these bigger terms and concepts to, to specific practices, I think is really key. And I think you're, you're talking about uncertainty there really echoes with, with my experience in, in, in my school. So thinking about our year 11s mm-hmm. who have observed that uncertainty for the previous two year cohorts and they haven't had the models, have they, of those older students preparing for these high stakes exams mm-hmm. um, and, and, and the physical nature of sitting those. Um, and schools are rebuilding those routines around their exam preparation and the, and the culture of that in their schools. And I know something that schools think carefully about is calibrating that, that direct messaging in the lead up to exams. And I wonder if you can talk us through your perspective on messaging in terms of revision preparation. Well, I think one of the most interesting sets of conversations I ever had with a group of actually it was year 10 students at the time but it kind of carries forward into year 11 um, was that as soon as I got into year 10 it felt like this barrage had suddenly hit me from the school about you know these next two years are the most you know important two years of your life what you make of yourself is determined by what comes in the next two years. And, you know, I don't think it's the same in every school. I don't think it's the same with every teacher at all, actually. But I think a common message from students is that from some, well, in in some schools and from some teachers, they get a lot of this. And it's reinforced at school assemblies. It's reinforced in lessons. And it's all bound up with that kind of, you know, I don't think this is ill-intentioned in any way, shape or form. It's all bound up with that wanting students to, you know, do the best they possibly can. And actually, you know, these messages students are getting are true, actually, because, you know, GCSE grades do and can determine what comes next. And... I think I think you know one of the one of my current oh, I can make many criticisms to the current educational landscape, but I, I think there's less opportunity nowadays for what used to be called in good old fashioned language late bloomers than there used to be. You know, it's all, almost like this emphasis on kind of getting it right when you're, you know, aged fourteen to eighteen, which you know is possibly the worst time to ask anybody to try and get something right. <laughs> Um, so, you know, there's this kind of, you know, you can almost look at it as, as a conduit, you know, teachers and schools being a conduit for pressures about achievement, which are placed on them from above and, you know, trickling down to students. Um, now I'm aware I've been talking about messages a little bit more generally here, um, and I'll, I'll come, I'll, I'll focus in on strategies in a minute, but, um, I just kind of wanted to set the scene a bit. What, one of the most interesting things 
you know, when you when you think about then this um, set of messaging around exams or the language used around exams and the, the you know the importance of exams for a student is that and this refers back to a point I was making um, just before is that how students respond to that differs massively. You know, I, 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 one of the, something I love doing with A-level students, and I go back into an A-level college now to, um, you know, do research. As I'll, you know, I'll just say to them, you know, did did you get this barrage of messages? You know, when you got into year ten, and they're all sitting there nodding, you know, and I say, who who liked it? You'll get about a third of the class put their hand up. Who didn't like it? You'll get about a third of the class put their hand up. Okay, so, you know, when you start digging down into that, what's going on there? Well, those students who liked it are coming from the perspective of actually it gave me impetus. I needed that proverbial um, stick to get me going. I found it motivating, actually. And, you know, you ask the students that didn't like it, um, and they say it, it, it just scared the hell out of me. It made me panic. Every time I heard that message, I kind of froze up and thought, you know, my life's going to be a failure if I don't get this right. You know, so people respond very, very, very differently to pressure. And um, somebody called Tamsin McAlden from from University of Manchester, whose PhD I was involved in supervising, had this lovely, lovely set of interview data with students from the same class. And listening them um, to the same students, so, so they were in the same set, they had the same teacher. They were talking about the same things the teacher said, you know, of how differently they interpreted that language, you know, in, in almost like quite polarised, quite polarised ways. So anyway, I've been talking about um, messaging more generally. So when messaging comes to um, revision strategies, um, what I think is that any messaging about revision strategies uh, is going to be helpful, but it's got to be um, supported by practice. Um, you know, and in one way, you know, I, I, I've seen many schools actually put this into practice, that students have to be exposed to lots and lots and lots of revision strategies. Because, I don't know, for, for whatever reason, I, I think your average year 10, year 11 student doesn't seem to be aware of a lot of different strategies that exist and the sort of multiple ways in which they can potentially revise. So I think they've got to be exposed to different ways of revision. And then they've got to be almost, I mean, you can't just encourage them. This has got to be built into a kind of cycle of tutorial and feedback with teacher. They've got to be kind of instructed to go away and try these different strategies because, you know, you've got some strategies which are more appropriate for some subjects. You've got other strategies which are more appropriate for other subjects. So again, you can't have this one size fits all. It's got to be underpinned by subject pedagogy. But within specific subjects, you know, they need to try these different things out. And I think the other thing year 10, year 11 students are really not very good at is knowing whether these strategies work for them. So it's got to be built into a cycle of self-regulated learning, which sounds really, really <laughs> much grander than it is. You know, it's simply about, you know, planning revision, doing revision, and then evaluating whether that revision worked or not. And how do you do it? Well, you test yourself. You know, and it could just be trying to write down everything you know or say back everything you know to a peer. It could be doing a practice exam question, and that could be, you know, as part of a, a kind of homework task that students have been given. And then you reevaluate your goals. You know, could I learn what I set out to learn? Could I remember what I needed to remember? Did I 
get the points that I needed to get in in order to achieve, you know, maximum marks on a particular exam question and so on and so on. And if I didn't, why not? And this is building in the control element of it. Why did I not? Was it because the revision strategy didn't work? Was it because I didn't do it well enough? Do I need to do it again? And, you know, you just keep going around in a circle like this. And the more you go around in a circle like this, with essentially the student giving themselves feedback eventually, what you're doing is building control through a cycle of self-regulated learning. So, yeah, some revision strategies... Well, all, all revision strategies to a degree are underpinned by subject pedagogy and a subject specific. Um, but you'll also find that, you know, some students, you know, as, as, as I'm sure you both well know, just respond better to some strategies than others. So really what I'm saying about is let's let's take the hit and missness out of this. <laughs> let's make it a much more refined and precise process, uh, which does require a bit of time. It does require a bit of forethought about, and, you know, I wouldn't want this to be seen as, because I know, you know, GCSEs are very content heavy about it coming in place of subject content. It's about supporting subject content and using subject content and building this into subject content rather than kind of, you know, extracting time away from it. Um, you know, how that, I mean, you know, there's, there's many different models in which they, that can be implemented. But yeah, it's about underpinning messaging with practice to support some really, really interesting things there around and, and, and things for us to reflect on in terms of the number of staff and number of messages that are coming to, to students at that time. I'm thinking about in school, you know, our pastoral leads, teaching and learning leads, subject leaders, teachers, and all of those messages. Interesting challenge, isn't it, for us to, to try and calibrate that messaging that's coming coming towards our students. So thank you. I, I probably speak on my behalf and Kirsten's behalf and our audience. That was a really fascinating exploration of, of the current challenges, the kind of, you know, the eternal seeming challenge of, of exams and preparation and pressures. Um, but, but there's lots of real practical insights there. And I feel like um, what's important is we often, you know, we're looking for last minute fixes, but I think what you shared with us there is the, the messages and insights that, are enduring they're important for next year the year after i've mm. got my little boy yeah. uh he's doing his sats in a few weeks you know i think the messages you've shared are relevant for my little boy you know in five or six years time as well so thank you for sharing that expertise and your insights yeah my pleasure thank you So I'm now really pleased to welcome our first guest, uh, who's a school leader, uh, Sadie Thompson. Uh, Sadie, can you introduce yourself, your background, your school, uh, and then we'll get into it. Yes, thank you, Alex. So my name is Sadie Thompson, and uh, I'm subject leader for German. So I'm an MFL specialist um, at Thorndon School in Hampshire. Um, but I also work as part of our research school with a HISP research school which is Hampshire, Isle of Wight, Southampton and Portsmouth um, and I'm deputy director there. Okay brilliant and um, it's that time of year so you're in a secondary school no matter where we are in the country whether in the sunny south or uh, up north we recognise those exam challenges and it feels like um, this year more than any you know there's been the last two years of the pandemic the uncertainty the issues what are your reflections just in terms of you know, for your colleagues and for particularly students at school in terms of 
where we are right now, preparations for exams, kind of the degree of certainty or uncertainty or otherwise. What's the kind of what's your feeling about issues right now? Well, what we have is a, a cohort of pupils who have done their com- their whole exam year in and out of lockdowns. So the, the, the pushes that we've had on curriculum time there are, are evident. Um, we're out of practice in terms of um, past paper practice because we simply haven't had as much time to devote to that. You know, usually we've got a few lessons at the end of the year in which we can go, okay, we'll do a few past papers now just to to get you in the zone and get you used to it. Um, But we've had to let that slip a little bit in in place of covering the whole of the course content. And, And that's been a bit of a squeeze. And I think most MFL colleagues will say that's usually the case anyway, as it is. It's quite a wide specification, thousands of words to cover, um, alongside the exam skill and and I think primarily the issue is we have we have four exams that we have to prepare our pupils for we have listening reading writing and then the speaking which comes with its own anxieties um, and what we like to do is be able to spend some time at the end of the year preparing for each of those skills in turn and we've had to be a little bit more creative with that this year because the pupils haven't had as much time to spend just going through past papers. We don't have an awful lot of past papers available because we've got two years worth of exam papers that never happen. So we don't have those. We've only got our teacher assessment that we've been using. Um, and, And it's felt a bit unfair at times to hand over a whole paper and say, off you go, let's try and do this. So we've we've adapted our approach a little bit, I think, to help manage some of those uncertainty uncertainties and those anxieties with the students because I think they're increasingly aware that they've got a bit of a, a challenge on their hands. They've got a lot of exams to take and, and they know they've been in and out of school. And so we've coached them through it, I'd say. I'd say a lot more um, taking questions piece by piece, working through them, modelling our answers, a, a lot of that as opposed to a, a get on with it, this is your revision programme. I think that's how we, we've tried to manage that this year. That's great. And just in terms of the reducing uncertainty in terms of what type of things have you been saying to to your students I've tried to be really transparent with the pupils this year we're all aware that we've we're in a unique situation and we've we've got exams creeping up on us um really simple things that we've tried to do is the whole of our department have created a revision plan shared that with the pupils, given that to them at the beginning of this sort of exam season and said, this is what you are going to be doing every single week. This is your revision program. This is your structure. And we've set that alongside as their homework tasks, really. So actually, that kind of not knowing where to start in terms of how to revise, what to do, picking up an old exercise book from year 10 and, you know, hopefully flicking through the pages and and hoping something sticks. We know that that's not going to work for them. So we've given them much more structure in what their revision should look like and and what they should be doing um, and kind of taking away from them not so much the choice but that the the options where they're faced with so many different ways to revise and we've said look this is what you need to do and this is going to work if you stick to this plan then then you'll be really well prepared um, and I think they felt supported by that in that when it comes to okay this is the hour on my timetable I've put aside for my Spanish you know, this is what my teacher says I need to do. I need to do a little bit of vocab and then I need to do some some practice questions with that vocab to make sure I've really recalled it and I'm testing that. Um, and I think that's been really helpful. The pupils have certainly commented that they know what to do when they're revising now, it, that they're very clear on 
what revision will look like for, for languages lessons. Um, and I think that's been really powerful for them. Yeah, I can imagine that security coming through that pre-prepared plan and having those conversations with students. Can we drill down into some of those specific strategies around revision and exam preparation? You've talked about vocab, and I know we've talked about that before, particularly with MFL, haven't we? Mm. Um, some of those strategies, can you share with us that you're, you're doing with your students? Absolutely. So the, one of the issues that we have is that the, the vocabulary is, is, is wide. There's a vast number of words to, to, to learn. And much like people say about writing and the alphabet, you have this thing, don't you, where you have 26 letters and any kinds of combination of them, you, you, you can create anything. And it's exactly the same. Unfortunately, in languages, we can teach them as many words and the meanings of them as we possibly can. But what we can't predict is the combination and therefore the meaning that's going to come across. So particularly on those higher writing papers, you can have some really, really bizarre combinations. And we've had texts that are quite notorious about nuns in Spain. And then there's the, 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 the French aristocrat who wants to marry off his daughter. And it's that kind of thing that you always say to students, don't you, to um, use your common sense <laughs> and to, to, to predict what's going to happen. And, and that can be really challenging. So, so what we have to do is share with the students the strategies that we use when we come across an unfamiliar text. And it's really simple things sometimes. It can be absolutely stating the obvious. Um, so I teach German for Key Stage 4, and a really obvious thing about German is that nouns all have a capital letter. So when I'm presented with a brand new text, I'm skimming the text, and I'm looking for the words with the capital letters to grab the nouns, and I can pick out the, the main theme of that. Other things that we know that they do is um, verbs get moved to the end. So if you're trying to spot what the action is and what's happening in that sentence, we go, right, go to the end of the sentence and you'll be able to figure out what is happening. And it's modelling to the students when we do those kinds of questions in class, those weird and wonderful texts. OK, this is what I'm doing first. I'm trying to get myself the context. I'm skimming and scanning. And this is how I do that. And it's making that really explicit, isn't it? It's making that really obvious, sharing that thinking with them. Um, and hopefully giving them kind of an insight into what an expert language learner is doing so that they can then repeat those behaviours themselves, particularly when they're in the scary scenario of an exam. Yeah, thank you. I can see how really making that thinking visible is going to help help students, especially now. And, and thinking about the last couple of years, um, how we've introduced this kind of podcast and thinking around self-regulation and independence students be able to select the right revision strategy at the right time and, and doing things that we know maybe has an impact for them. Can you talk us through a little bit around that self-regulation and how those students have, have presented and how you've supported them? Yeah, absolutely. We've had um, a number of challenges in that I think sometimes students can find the, the, the concept of the four different exams quite overwhelming. Um, and it, it's just making sure that we, we make it really clear, OK, and this is what we're doing at the moment. We're focusing on speaking because that's our first priority. So everything that we do now is going to be linked around that. Um, people often forget about the fact that the listening is very clearly linked to that. And the, the pupils want to just have some time to get on and practice speaking. Knowing 15 and 16 year olds like I do, I know that if I set them off on a task and say, off you go, go and do some speaking, it's unlikely that they're going to be able to, to, to last very long doing that by themselves. So it's helping them to, to manage that. It's giving them the, the, the tools that they've got in class, giving them materials that they can practice from and saying, 
this is what you need to practice. You need to do one of these, one of these, and one of these. You've got 10 minutes and let's come back and have a look at that together. And it's that, that feedback. It can be challenging. And I think I, I made notes before about the, 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 the feedback and trying to, to get evaluation and pupils wanting to, to really look for a mark and a grade at this time of year. And the, the, the problems that that pose is the, the, the strict timeline that you've got in order to be able to, to give feedback you know, timely so that they've got an opportunity to work on it. Um, so I tend to step away from marking and grading things at this stage and just try to give the, the feedback in terms of improvement. So I'm, I'm wandering around, they're doing their practice speaking photo card answers, for example, and I'm hovering and saying, okay, remember that you need to include this, this, and this in your mark scheme. You want a developed answer here. And then, you know, that someone else in the room might be doing a role play and that's short and concise. And so it's them wandering over and saying, okay, right, you, you need a shorter answer here. That's what's going to get you the marks. And it's just reminding them of that. And stepping away from, you need this for a 15 out of 15 and, and just encouraging, okay, what's the approach that, that you need? What's the, the, the technique that you need to showcase here? So one of the realities for the students we talked about is they just haven't had the same typical experiences, the kind of you know, mock exam sequences and you know, all of those realities that build confidence, reduce that uncertainty. Um, there's been a lot of independent study, hasn't there, over the last couple of years for a lot of students, you know, where, you know, remote learning has, has enforced a kind of a new way of working. Um, I wonder if is that, have you noted any impact or perhaps given the kind of demands of getting the curriculum done in kind of narrow parameters, we've actually reduced a little bit of that independence. So where do you think the balance is lying this year and is it unique and different? It's hard, isn't it? Because we we almost forced an expectation on the students during those lockdowns um, to be able to motivate themselves. Um, and it was, okay, we, we delivered quite a lot of online learning. We, we were fortunate in that we had the technology available to, to deliver a lot of live lessons. Um, and that in itself, we were very grateful for. And we, we tried to keep business as usual, but we know that in actual fact, that wasn't necessarily the case. And you know, it's that thing, isn't it, about get, getting students there. You've got all the kit, but are they going to be able to get themselves up, sat there and joining in along with you? Um, and it, I can find it frustrating sometimes, um, that kind of concept of like, come on, we've done this. We should know this by now. We, sh we should be at, at this point. Um, but I think it's just being sensitive to the fact that we're in a really unique situation and, and we need to remind ourselves that, that time is 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 past now. We're, we've we've lost that time, and we've got nothing to gain from watching the students struggle and um, finding that you know they they can't find the answer. We need to be be more explicit with them and and use that time to to get them to where they need to be. Um, yeah, just because we've taught it doesn't mean that they've learned it. I suppose. <laughs> yeah, thank you. So thinking, Sadie, about that five minute exam briefing before they go in. What sort of things might you be saying? And, you know, really interested to think whether that feels different this year. Yes, I know. I hate those. <laughs> they, give me, they make me so nervous. I, I feed off it. I absolutely feel all the nerves of it. And we're recording speaking exams this week. And the, I was saying that the sleepless nights have already started about whether I've hit record or not. Um, but it's, it's just it's wrapping them into the scenario, isn't it? So it's usually lots of lots of TLC, lots of target language around them just to tune them in. It's an appreciation that this is not the time that you're going to learn anything new, but this is the time that you need to think about 
what what do I need to be doing? What what strategies do I already know that I can use and recycle in this exam? What are my top tips? What are they looking for? What can I make sure I can do so that they feel prepared to deal with whatever scenario that presents itself and whichever weird and wonderful text that the exam boards put out this year? <laughs> Thank you, Sid. Yeah, I think that's made me feel a bit relaxed actually about mm-hmm. this year's exams. <laughs> Put me at ease and and reduce that uncertainty. So uh, thank you. And and, um, importantly as well, just wish all the best to your students um, this year. Uh, I'm sure they'll do brilliantly under your tutelage. Thank you. Thank you. I hope so. I'm delighted to be joined by Simon Cox, an experienced school leader. Simon, can I come straight to you to uh, introduce yourself? Yeah, thanks, Kirsten. Hi, everyone. Uh, Yeah, my name is Simon Cox. Um, I work in a large 11 to 18 school in Blackpool, uh, where I also lead the Blackpool Research School. Great. And uh, we have been exploring the particular challenges around exam preparation for this year. Certainly feels a little bit different. So just wondered if you could talk us through some of those practical challenges around exam preparation. Yeah, absolutely. It's been one heck of a year, hasn't it? And and so has the last few years. And I I think the key word for me um, is is uncertainty, this idea of not really knowing. Um, We often find that pupils look to us for reassurance. They want guidance from their teachers. They're used to us having the answers. Um, And there's been a bit of a culture shift with that. You know, no exams the last couple of years. Um, Students asking questions like, will they happen this year? Are you sure? What will happen if they don't? And, you know, I think reassurance and and sort of, uh, of, you know, making sure that they are uh, comfortable with with the situation as it is at the moment has been sort of the watchword there. And, you know, we've gone from this absolute certainty in previous years. You know, exams are are a bedrock that they're always there we end the year with them to this considerable uncertainty so I think it's it's, it's been a time when reassurance has been absolutely key uh, and really supporting pupils through and, and, and helping them to understand that okay yeah we might not be 100% sure what's going to happen this year uh, but whatever happens we will make sure that they are as best prepared as they can be. Yeah, and I wonder if you can talk us through how that's looked in terms of evidence-informed revision strategies, exam preparation, just using that to try and reduce the uncertainty. Yeah, and this is um, this is key, I think. Um, we've done a lot of exploration as a school um, over the past few years, actually, so it's not just a recent um, thing, um, around um, what the evidence tells us about effective learning, both in the classroom, but also in terms of revision for students at home. Um, and we found, um, you know, in line with, with the findings from Dunlosky uh, a number of years ago now, which is a paper that we've explored quite extensively as a staff, we found that our students... Um, fell back on on strategies which were probably better than doing nothing, but certainly not the most effective thing that students could be spending their time doing. So lots of rereading, lots of uh, highlighting of, of notes and so on. And I think, you know, w- when you look to parents to support young people with um, their revision, um, parents often fall back on those strategies as well, because that's what that's what we did. That's certainly what I did when I was at school, because I didn't know um, any better. So w- we've done a lot of exploration as a, as a staff, uh, looking at, uh, at the work of Dunlosky and others, um, uh, thinking okay well how how can we sort of nudge students practice in in a more evidence-informed direction something that's likely to be more beneficial to to their learning Um, and 
we, we try and model that right the way down the school. I, I think um, one sort of piece of advice I would give is, is that if you're doing these things in year 11, it's possibly a little too late. So actually working with students from the moment they come in, in year seven, modelling that through what we do in the classroom, so modelling things like retrieval and spacing out of practice and so on, uh, but also supporting students to understand what it means to, to be an effective learner. So if we're sending, for example, a year seven pupil home with some vocabulary to learn in MFL, um, what does that actually mean? How, how do you learn that? What strategies should you be using at home uh, in, in order to, to, to develop that understanding? Um, also taking those chances to work with parents where possible uh, and share the evidence with them, because it's often a gap in, in parents' knowledge. It certainly would be a gap in my knowledge had I not come into, come into teaching. So, so really thinking uh, lower down the school about how we support pupils to become effective learners. And then as that comes through into the exam years, so, so year 11, year 12, year 13, um, we, we really work with students to put together uh, revision plans. So, so using the principles of spaced learning, for example, we, we get them a, a blank calendar, and we get them to think about uh, the principles of spacing and when they should be doing their um, revision. We try not to call it revision, really, because it's just ongoing learning. These should be things that, that are just happening. Um, and, and so we work with them to space that out um, and, and, and put together that revision plan that they can then use um, at home. And again, um, involving parents in that process wherever possible. Yeah, really, really interesting, isn't it? Uh, finding, certainly at our school, parents having just increasingly more interest you know having had that period of lockdown and home learning um, that kind of interest and in sharing those strategies being so important and you're kind of touching there on the role of cognitive science I'm thinking about the EEF um, report that came out and I just wonder whether there are key learnings from there that perhaps you've used more explicitly this year that, that that's helped shape some of some of your plans. Yeah absolutely uh, I, I think the um one sort of finding from the COGSI review that I found really um, useful as a, as a leader was this idea that actually a lot of the issues around the use of COGSI in the classroom come out of a misunderstanding of an important part of the theory. So, so we work really hard as a school to try and minimise the chance of that happening. I think we often want to rush into things in, in schools and, and we do that with with good intention. We want to impact upon the young people working with them, want to do that as quickly as possible. So, you know, we, we might look at something like retrieval practice from the COGSI review uh, and think, okay, great, we want to do that and we want to do that quickly. Uh, but I think that the issue around that um, is that that's where these misunderstandings come from. So as, as a director of research school, I have the time to, to read the research, to, to, to really think about it, but not every teacher has that opportunity. And if we rush into something, um, we, we might be um, sort of increasing the chance of these sort of misunderstandings uh, coming out. So, so, so one thing we've certainly done as a school is, is, is taken the long view with this, really thinking about, okay, let's explore this research together. And, and that takes time. You know, teachers are busy people. We need to factor that in um, over quite a period of time to, to read the research together, to discuss what that research means for us. Um, we're really keen to avoid a one-size-fits-all approach. So rather than saying, okay, retrieval practice is important, so we want every teacher to do it in this way, you know, start of the lesson and, and this is what it looks like. We, we tend to avoid that. Uh, we, we give we give departments autonomy. We recognise that 
retrieval will look different in a uh, maths lesson to how it's going to look in a science lesson or a history lesson and, and, and that's okay but really giving um, teachers the, the opportunity to, to think about these things and what it means for their practice and, and develop those strategies and um, you know even the timing of, of things like retrieval um, there's a tendency to want to do retrieval at the start of a lesson, but that's not necessarily um, always the best time to do that. It's kind of an ongoing process throughout our lesson. So again, just really working with teachers to, to, to make sure that these are ideas which are understood um, and, and that we can then apply uh, in a really meaningful way to, to our teaching. And, and for me, I think that you know, we shouldn't rush into these things. We need to think really carefully about um, if these things are worth doing, it's worth taking our time over these things and making sure that we we don't sort of open up those misconceptions amongst teachers um, that, that can then be passed on to students. Great. Thanks, Simon. Um, I think we'll just end on something we've asked all of our guests, actually. We've been um, thinking about that kind of five-minute pre-exam briefing, those last few moments before our students go into their exams. And I just wonder what your thoughts are on those final messages and whether that's been different this year to previous. Yeah, it, it, it's a tricky time, that, isn't it, as a teacher? Yeah. You, you, your sort of instinct is, right, five minutes before the exam, I want to remind you about all of this stuff. I want to sort of bombard you with facts. And I think that, that could leave you going into an exam pretty stressed, actually, if your teacher seems that they're kind of on edge and trying to fill your head with all this stuff that you should know anyway by now. Um, so, so I think for, for me, um, I... I prefer a much sort of calmer approach to that that those sort of reassuring messages you know you you're ready for this trust me you're ready for this and, and we've prepared you well over the past few years um and you know I I even go so far as not 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 wishing my students good luck because I always think well um, you don't need good luck, actually, because you, you're ready for this and you're in the place where you need to be. Um, so, so I think those messages are key and trying, you know, even though we might be a little anxious as a teacher sending our pupils into an example, trying where possible not to sort of transfer that onto them and leaving them sort of with, with that kind of, you know, positive attitude to take into that example and, and give it their absolute uh, best shot. Brilliant. Thanks, Simon. And yeah, wishing you, the teachers and all your students well with this season coming upon us right now. Um, I'm reflecting on what we've heard and the complexities of the impact of the last couple of years on teachers and, of course, on students sitting examinations this year. And it seems that what we know around behavioural routines and metacognition, social emotional learning and the principles of COGSI really helping us find a path through those uncertainties. And of course, knowing our students, those relationships really matter. So we'll finish there. Lots to think about. Um, thank you, everyone, for listening. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the Evidence in Action podcast to keep following new areas of evidence where we try to bring together voices of experts in their areas alongside practitioners with their classroom experience. Thank you for listening. <laughs>